this morning. As we come now to the uh, scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father, each week we um, bow before you and give you thanks for uh, the scripture. Um, What a wonderful, thoughtful, kind, loving God you are to write to us in a language we can understand and enable us to know you. And so we're grateful. So I pray now that as we come to it, that we would revere this word, that we would respect this word, that we would listen to this word because we know it's God-breathed, it's your word. And so we pray now, help us. Holy Spirit, please um, enlighten us that we may uh, know you, God, better. We may know the hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, and the great power that works within us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ephesians in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, please. Of course, this is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of, of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, this is one of the most well-loved, I suppose, most oft-quoted passages in the New Testament, especially as it pertains to an understanding of our salvation, our rescue uh, from the wrath of God by God uh, himself. You remember the context in chapter 1? Paul lays out that it's God who saves us. We have not saved ourselves. It's God who saves us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's according to his will, um, uh, by his grace, for his purpose, indeed, for the purpose of the praise of his Glorious grace. So we've been saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and he prays that uh, we, his readers, uh, would really know this. That the Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds, would illumine our minds in such a degree that 
we would see it, that we would know the hope to which we've been called. We know the riches of, of this glorious inheritance that we have. And that we would know this power that raised Jesus from the dead, this power that really works in us. And so now Paul, as he lays out in chapter 2, he's going to speak to us about that power that really has worked in us. It really has worked uh, in us, this power uh, to save them. And really, the, the verses I read in chapter 2 is everybody's testimony. That's everybody's testimony. This is the truth of our coming to faith in Jesus. Now, the particulars change and are different than how we've expressed sin and our sinfulness may be different. But this is everybody's testimony. Some some testimonies are as dramatic as the Apostle Paul's was, you know, really got knocked off your horse. And uh, and a real revelation of Jesus at a particular moment in time. And you know the time, the date, the moment. You know the change that took place immediately. And, and others have, have a rather boring testimony, like, I can't remember not believing in Jesus. But this really gets at the whole of it for... Um, for all of us. And, and the, the reason that Paul, I think, comes to this point and says what he says here is because he's just told us that God can save us. Indeed, only God can save us. And now he's going to tell us why only God could save us. Why we can't save ourselves. Why we're no help at all to ourselves in rescuing us from the wrath of God. In restoring us to relationship with God. So he's going to lay that out. So he says God has saved us. Now he's going to tell us why God has saved us. And why he, it was necessary for God to save us. Why we couldn't save ourselves. And I think the easiest outline of these verses are just from a, a couple of words really. In a couple of verses. In chapter 2 verse 1. Uh, the first part uh, is an understanding that begins with and you. And then in verse 4. An understanding that begins with but God. And so we see about ourselves, and then we see about God. We see about ourselves the condition that we're in, and so that we can't save ourselves. And then we hear about God who did. And you, and me, but God. Um, So, verses 1 through 3, and you. Here's our condition. Here's the reason why we couldn't save ourselves. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires uh, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, it's very important for us to know ourselves. Very important to know ourselves. John Calvin, as he writes in his classic work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, puts it like this. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now, we would say, of course, we need to know about God. But we also need to know about ourselves. Because, you see, if we don't really know about ourselves, then we could believe a lie about us and about what we truly need, who we truly are. And the difficulty with knowing ourselves is is, is that sin distorts 
all knowledge, knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God. And so God not only has to reveal to us who he is, but he has to also reveal to us who we are. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above uh, all things, um, and it's desperately wicked. Who can really know it? And so he's saying to us, because of the wickedness of our hearts, how can we know ourselves really? And so we rely upon God to reveal to us who we are. That's why the scripture is called a mirror. James, it calls it a mirror that we look into to see an undistorted uh, view of ourselves. And so now the apostle lays out this truth about who we are. And, and these opening verses are not hyperbole. This is not scripture using a, a way of speaking that simply exaggerates for effect. Now, there are times when we read in scripture the uh, hyperbole, uh, an exaggeration, just to kind of get our attention. Jesus says think, something like, if you want to follow me, you must hate your father and your mother. You go, wow. Because <laughs> I thought it was to love my father and mother. Well, he's saying, yeah, but... but there's something here I want to catch your attention with about what it really means to love me, right? But, but, but this is not an overstatement of our lostness. And this is the reality of our lostness. This isn't an overstatement of our helplessness. It's the reality of our helplessness. This isn't an overstatement of our hopelessness, but this is the reality of our hopelessness. Uh, so we mustn't uh, ever understate the effect of sin in our lives. And so Paul comes to it and he doesn't uh, understate it. Notice how he puts it. He begins by saying that we're dead now, the surprising thing about that statement is that we're not, right? I mean, we're breathing. If anyone's not breathing, let me know. Uh, but uh, we're breathing. In that sense, we're alive. But there's a sense in which we must be dead or he wouldn't say it. So, 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 so we're alive in the sense he say you're walking. And he doesn't mean just like taking a walk. He means you're living out your life. He says we're following. So there's movement in us. We're animated. And he says we have passions and desires. So, so that, those, those are indicators of, of, of some kind of life. But he says, I know that, that you, 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 you give the appearance of being alive alive in every way, but you're not alive in every way. You're dead in the most significant of ways. You're dead spiritually. You're, you're dead in, in the sense that you're lifeless as it pertains to God. There's no response there. You're dead and you're dead in trespasses and sins. Your life, our lives are characterized by trespasses and sins. Now, the degree of our experience of that kind of depravity may, may differ uh, among each other, or even the course of our lives, or as we see it. Uh, one theologian says uh, that uh, there's always room for deprovement. <laughs> but, but the sense that, that this characters, characterizes our, the, the essence of our lives, trespasses and sins. And, and that sort of covers everything. Uh, a trespass means that you... That you go where you ought not. Right? If you see a sign on a piece of property that says no trespassing, you're not supposed to go there. 
right? Well, sin means missing the mark, which means we don't go where we ought to go. So this covers it all. We go where we ought not, and we don't go where we should go. And we can see the, the particular sins in our lives in that way. When we lie, we don't tell the truth. So we're rebelling against the law that says don't lie. We're going where we ought not go. We're speaking that which is false and that which is harmful. Um, we lie. And at the same time, we're not telling the truth. We're not doing what we ought to do. When we, when we gossip, we're speaking ill of another to bring them harm. We're not speaking that which is edifying for them. We trespass and we sin when we're being impatient, which means we're being annoyed when we ought not be. And it means we're not being gracious when we should be. So, so we trespasses and sins that, that covers the gambit of, of rebellion, really, ultimately against God. And he says what that shows, what that reveals, these trespasses and sins, is that we're really dead to God. We, we're not lie alive really uh to him oh we're alive to rebellion but we're dead to submission we're alive to unbelief but we're dead to belief uh, we're alive to the glory of ourselves but we're dead to the glory of god we don't really we don't really see it in fact uh, sooner or later we'll come to ephesians 4 uh in these verses verse 17 the apostle writes Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. And here's the point. Alienated from the life of God. Dead. Alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. And this ignorance isn't just simply, um, I don't know. But he says this ignorance that is in them is due to the hardness of their hearts, which means I don't want to know. I I don't want this. I don't want this knowledge of God. I I resist it. Um, I suppress it. This is a willful act because of the condition, if you will, of our hearts. Um, The verdict I read earlier from Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. We were made to glorify him. We were made to reflect his worth. We were made to worship him. We were made to, to, to live in such a way that would show who he is and his glory. And we simply have fallen short of that. That sin, we haven't done it. We haven't done what we ought. We've done what we ought not. And so John Stott, theologian, puts it like this. He says, we are as unresponsive to God as a corpse Our lives are living death. To affirm this paradox, living death, is to become aware of the tragedy of fallen human existence. It's that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. It's that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. That's... And not only are we living without him... We don't really want him. You see, our minds are turned the other way. If he came to us and he said, uh, here I am, I'm yours, we'd say, no, thank you. Or worse, we'd say. The great expression of Luther wasn't it. He came to God and spit in his face as a sinner. So then notice the second point that he makes. He's saying we're following the course 
of this world. And when he says we're following the course of this world, he's using the word world, that sense of being all that that is against God that is in the world. Uh, primarily, I would think a whole value system that rewards us for not following God. That rewards us for putting ourselves first. That rewards us for thinking about ourselves first. That rewards us for, for living according to our passions and desires and our preferences. To d- define ourselves and say, I must be true to myself. The world that says that human beings are the measure of all things. And the world that says uh, human beings uh, uh, are the end of all things. And so he says, he says you're, you're following that course to please or as the Apostle John would put it, to love the world and the things that are in the world, as opposed to loving God and the things which are true of him. That's the course of our lives. And so you can see the very direction of our lives is opposite of God. And then notice this. He says, you're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Um, Sons of disobedience. The, the sense is, this is my life. This is my identity as one who is, who, who is, who is a child of my father who leads me to disobey. And that isn't God. That's the prince of the power of the air, who's also known as the God of this world, meaning his domain is the world. His domain is evil. If the throne of Jesus is a throne of grace and mercy, the throne of Satan, is the throne of destruction. And he says, he's your father. Now, he influences this one whose domain is darkness. Obviously, he's not a ruler like God is ruler. He's not absolute in his rule. But yet, he's, by God, given this domain, with this, what the scripture calls this present evil age. Paul will speak of this later in Ephesians in chapter 6 and verse 12. He says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the domain. And, and what, what Paul's saying about us, all of mankind, he's saying that, that we've, we're, we're in that Domain that we're under that rule that we're enslaved there. That's a drastic thing to say. That we follow this one who is evil, and 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 if you you notice the influence, and I don't know how Satan does this exactly. So, but but the influence that we read of him, for instance, you remember the parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the sower, and he said the sower goes out and sows seed, and he sows seed amongst the ground where there's the, the the evil one can come and snatch it up, keep some from receiving, if you will, from really receiving this word, and he speaks in Second Corinthians in chapter. For the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Can't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that's the one in whose domain we are until we're freed from it. Uh, That's a dramatic statement. It's a place of real helplessness and real hopelessness, you see. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, you might remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They give some money. They lie about it. Um, and Peter comes to Ananias and say, Why has Satan put in your heart 
to lie to the Holy Spirit. Under his domain, under Satan's domain, is this possibility of him putting a lie into our, into our hearts, you see. Uh, that's a very dramatic statement. You remember Jesus was with his disciples and they were interacting with the religious leaders of the day and the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees were saying that they were children of Abraham and thus sons of God. And, and Jesus was saying, no, you're not. You're sons of your father. He was the devil. And he's been a murderer from the beginning. And so we see sons of disobedience. And Paul's saying all of us are in that same condition. Lest or until we've been freed from that particular place, that particular power. So how can we be released from that? And then he speaks like this. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of of mankind, He says, so this flesh is a problem. And by flesh, of course, we know he doesn't mean our skin and all of that. He's referring to something um, that means our sinfulness, our sinful, uh, our sinful natures. Um, after Adam sinned, then we inherited sin and this sinfulness, this sinful nature. And now we're in, enslaved to it. You remember, not too long after Adam sinned, We see it in Genesis chapter 6 that the thoughts and intentions of human beings were evil continuously. That was what characterized us, those evil thoughts and inclinations. Um, Jeremiah says what it did to our hearts, it um, caused our hearts to be wicked. Who can trust it? They deceive us. Jesus said that Though light has come into the world, men love darkness rather than light. That's our condition. We love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. Jesus said, if we sin, John chapter 8, we're slaves to sin. What that means is we can't break the bondage of sin. In fact, Jesus said that this condition is so great that no one can come to him Unless the Father brings him, unless the Father draws him. That's the condition of sin in our lives. Uh, As Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans in chapter 3, he writes this. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he goes on and it gets even even worse uh, from there. Uh, And then... In Romans and uh, chapter 6, in verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin. That's our condition, slaves to sin. And then in chapter 8 of Romans, in verse 7, he says, For 6, for the minds on the f- set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Because it's physically unable, but because it doesn't want to. It's completely unwilling. That's the nature of the work of sin in us. And and you say, wow, this is really depressing. (laughs) 
In one sense, I hope so. I mean, we need to really get it. Because you may look at your life and say, I've been a pretty good person. You know, he's a good kid, blah, 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 blah. And, and that's no doubt true, as we would understand good. But, but, but he's saying, no, no, our hearts are such that even in the good that we thought we were doing, we weren't doing it for the glory of God. But we were glo- doing it for our own glory. Um, we were rational, reasonable, uh, self-righteous people. <laughs> we said, we, if we do this, people will like us. If we do this, we'll get an allowance. If we do this, we'll get to do that. That's the sense in which we did the good that we did, you see. And even when we thought we were doing the good for God and we wanted to give him credit, we wanted people to give us credit for giving credit to God. Way to go, you know? What a good religious boy you are. So that's the sense of it, right? That's the problem. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God for it doesn't submit to his law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot, uh, cannot please God. In fact, so dramatic and drastic is this that when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says this in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The word of the cross is foolishness. You hear the cross, the great love of God for us in Jesus, and you say, no, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. So in chapter 14, I'm sorry, verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul writes, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit, for they're folly to him. They're foolish to him. There's no category in the heart to receive that. And he says he's not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. And then, of course, this remarkable little expression in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the apostle writes that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And you go, I can say that. Can you? And mean it? And believe it? And be glad for it? No. It takes the Holy Spirit Breaking us free from all of this. I mean, this is the difficulty. And then Paul sort of summarizes with, 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 the, with, the, with the big card that he plays, which is, and we're by nature children of wrath. Our very natures. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And I want to say, but I wasn't there. It's not my fault. He says, no, 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 you were in Adam. He represented all of mankind. And so from then on, you see, by our very nature, we're children of wrath. That is the wrath of God. And when we think of wrath, sometimes we say, well, that that seems unbecoming of God to say that he's wrathful. But that's only because we're thinking of our wrath, which is often irrational or often unmeasured, uh, often inappropriate. Uh, We just get ticked off. God isn't like that. God's wrath is always measured, it's always appropriate, it's always just, it's always righteous. In fact, his wrath is his righteous reaction, his righteous response to sin. It's perfectly appropriate. And given all of this about us, we're under his wrath. And when you think about that condition, we realize then, of course, the great danger that um, that we're in. But then the second part that begins with but God. See? We're completely 
helpless, can't help ourselves, and completely hopeless in ourselves to free us from this condition because it's our state, it's who we are, dead, unresponsive to God in trespasses and sins. Um, we follow by our very nature the course of the world. And we follow This one Satan, we are influenced by him. Thus we're enslaved by the world, by the devil, by our own flesh, our own sinfulness. And thus, by our very nature, we're under the wrath of God. But, God, who can save us? Who can help us? That's Paul's point. In chapter 1, he says, it's God who saved us. We say, well, why do we need God to save us? Why can't we do something? And he says, well, here's the situation. Here's who you are. And, and so, so you're completely hopeless and helpless. So, so now, but, but, but don't despair because of God. Don't despair because look what, look about, look what God has done. He says, and notice how he, he just kind of piles these, these words up one uh, upon the other. Um, he, he says that he's rich in mercy. And this great love with which he loved us. Uh, and he's, he's gracious to us and he's kind. And notice what he's done. He says he saved you. We see exactly what we need. We don't just need a helping hand, you see. We need to be rescued. I mean, we're dead. We need to be brought alive. We need to be given life, you see, towards God when we don't have it and, and can't get it. And so, so he saves us. He rescues us, you see. Um, and, and notice what he does. He raises us up with him and he, and he seats us uh, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're united to Christ. Um, we're raised with him and we're seated with him. If you remember as we... Um, used the Apostles' Creed this morning for our profession of faith. This, this language um, uh, is associated with events in the life of Jesus. That on the third day he was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And, and we see it here with us because we're in him. Uh, Romans chapter 6 says, when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. The, the benefits that Christ gained from dying and rising, we gain because we're in him. No longer children of wrath in Adam, but now we're in Christ as his very own. So we're raised, which means we've been given new life, which is exactly what we need. We're dead. So we've been given life so that we're no longer lifeless, unresponsive uh, to God. You know, John Stott's line was that... that, that um, in our relationship with God, we're like a corpse. We're no longer like a corpse because we've received this new life. That's what Jesus talked about. Remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to him and uh, asked him uh, uh, about eternal life. And, and Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And that's the very problem of this deadness. But he says, if you're born again, if you have this life, you're no longer dead, you can see it. You can see the kingdom of God. You can see this. And so we've been raised to this newness of life. That's what God has done. And, and please, I suspect that if you had died, <laughs> really physically dead, and were raised to life, you'd just be going, wow. Probably more than that. I'm a little understated when it comes to these kinds of things. But but you'd you just you'd you'd be amazed, and we should be that amazed. 
That this is what's happened to us spiritually, you see. We really, literally, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you were literally dead, unresponsive to God. You may have thought you were, you were responsive to him, but you really weren't. And it was only by this work of the Holy Spirit who gave you life that you were able to respond to God, no longer alienated from the life that's in God, but, but actually to embrace it. That's what's really happened to you. So Paul says you couldn't save yourself, but God... He raised you up. And not only that, he's seated you in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. You might say, how can I be seated with Christ when I'm right here? Well, you can be. Because spiritually, you're with him. And he's in glory and he's seated there in the heavenly place. You remember, uh, this is, this is uh, revealing my age a bit. Like I have to. Uh, but Tony Bennett, a singer, who's gotten cool in his latter years because he's sung with all these famous young people uh, recently, but uh, sang a song, I left my heart in San Francisco. <laughs> what did he mean by that when he was in New York? Well, what he meant by that is that he loved San Francisco, and that was his identity. He wanted to find restaurants in New York that served San Francisco food. Rice-a-roni, I suppose. You've got to be really old to get that one. Uh, but uh, but, but you had to, he wanted San Francisco food when he was in New York because that's where his heart was. And he used expressions like they used in San Francisco, not in New York, because that's where his heart was. His whole perspective, his whole inclination was, well, I know I'm in New York, but really I'm a San Franciscan. And that's, that's who I really am. And, and we're seated with Christ. Our inclinations have changed. And, and, and we, want to, we want things uh, that please him. And we want to speak in a way that we would speak around him. And we want to think in thoughts that we would think around him. And we want to love the things that he would love us to love, you see. We're seated with him. And not only that, when we think about being seated with him in heavenly places, he's on a throne. He's ruling and reigning. And we're with him. So on the one hand, we have great assurance that he'll, he'll conquer our enemies because we're with him. And not only that, we have great assurance that he will help us in overcoming temptation and walking with him. That's the power that's towards us. See, Paul had prayed that we would know the power that's towards us, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. How do we know that? He raises us too to newness of life. How do we know that? Because he seats us with him in the heavenly places so that we can too can have a victory over sin and the sin in our lives, you see. He says, I want you to know that power. God has done this. You couldn't. He did. But God, right? And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that's this sense of it. No longer are we in tune with evil. No longer are we enslaved to the evil one. No longer are we under the wrath of God, but rather we live in the midst of his kindness. Look at these words that he piles one upon the other. Um, rich in mercy. It's exactly what we need. When he says he's rich in mercy, he means there's, there, there's no end to his mercy. It's rich. It, it can never be exhausted. And, and mercy means... That he sees us in our misery, in our helplessness, in our hopelessness. And he comes to help us and to provide for us exactly what we need. And he's done that in Jesus. This great love with which he loved us. It's a great love. There isn't any other love like this. What does the scripture say? Romans 5.8. 
that God demonstrates, and the NIV and a couple other versions have it like this, and I like it, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. His own love that is, nobody else has a love like this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this love isn't dependent upon our being lovable. We were in our trespasses and sins when he loved us. We were rebelling against him when he loved us in Christ. And so if he would love us then, (laughs) will he not really love us now (laughs) that we're in him and forgiven and reconciled to him? Should we ever doubt his love when he's loved us, when we hated him? By grace, you've been saved. It's the grace of God, right? And grace is God's kindness shown to guilty sinners who deserve only his wrath. His grace is given to us. His kindness. Kindness is one of the best words in all the Bible. Because it reflects all of this. It reflects his mercy given to us. It reflects his love for us. It reflects his grace to us. And all of that in a spirit of gentleness. Do you know how some people can be nice to you, but when they are, it just feels really bad. (laughs) You take what they give because you need it, but you wish you didn't have to. (laughs) It's never that way with God. It's never that way with God. Even though we're in the state that we're in, that we're described in verses 1 through 3 as dead and against him and under the rule of Satan and all of that, when he comes to help us, he's happy to help us. He, he desires to help us. He wants to help us. It's sort of like the father of the prodigal. And the prodigal returns. He just says, oh, let's just cover you up. Let's just have a, a party. Let's just come together. And, and well, on the one hand, the son might say, well, wait a minute. What's going on? I don't deserve any of this. Just, just come on. Let me cover you up. Let's, 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 it's, that's kindness. Kindness is when you show goodness with gentleness. Kindness is when you show mercy in such a way that the one who receives the mercy thinks they're giving you a favor so you can help them, right? That's, 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 that's kindness, you see. That's, and, and that's the kindness of God, you see. We never back up to heaven. We go face first because he really wants us there. He really wants us in his presence. And so it's by grace, you've been saved, verse 8, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. What's not our own doing? What's this? What's the gift of God? Everything. (laughs) The whole of our salvation. Everything is the gift of God. Uh, That he raised us, given us new life. That he seated us in heavenly places. The gift. How could we earn that? And even the faith with which we receive it is a gift Because how could we receive it as those who are dead unless he gives us even the faith to receive it? Is faith something we do? Well, of course it is. Is this a good work that we do? It's good, but no, it's not meritorious in any way because A, it's been given to us. And B, faith means I'm turning away from everything else that I used to trust in. And now I'm saying that's all wrong. And now I'm trusting in God. (laughs) It's a gift. It's a gift. 
So who could we boast in? We can't boast in ourselves, so we can only boast in God. And then verse 10, it brings full circle. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before we were dead, now we're created. Before we walked in trespasses and sins, and now we walk in good works. Before we walked in the trespasses and sins that, that, that were prepared by the world, that were prepared by Satan, that were prepared by our sinful flesh, and now we walk in good works that have been prepared for us by God. What he's saying is you couldn't save yourself, but I saved you. Not only you couldn't save yourself, but I saved you completely. I took you when you were dead, and now you're alive. And I've recreated you. You can't give birth to yourself, or at least you can't conceive yourself, and you can't give birth to yourself. And you can't create yourself. But God can. And he says, now, let all the goosebumps go up and down your spine. Think about what you were, Think about what you would deserve for all eternity and realize that you're not under his wrath. But now for all eternity, he's going to make the immeasurable riches of his grace known to you. Scripture tells us that on the night's that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. We're declaring that I followed the ways of this world. What we're declaring is that I was enslaved to all of the influences of the evil one. What I'm saying is that what I'm declaring is that I lived according to the passions, desires of my flesh. What, I was de- what I'm declaring is that by nature I was under the wrath of God. But God. I'm declaring, but God sent his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have life, everlasting life. I'm declaring that in him I was raised I'm declaring that in him I was, I'm seated at the right hand of the Father in Jesus. I'm a recipient of his mercy. I'm a recipient of his grace. I'm a recipient of his love. I'm a recipient of his kindness. And now I'm to live. I'm to live to walk in the good works that he has prepared in advance for me to do. That's what I'm declaring. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now I pray you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way Oh, that we would know that we're in the very presence of the one with whom we're seated. And that we would know that this very one in whose presence we are has saved us. 
and that we've been raised in him and we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. And that we would know that we are loved by you. And we would know that we are now to walk with you. So please, as we come to this table, may it be with a great sense of wonder, may it be a great sense of joy, may it be a great sense of assurance, may it be with a great sense of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace. Church, it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior, the Rescuer, the Savior of sinners. And all those who know that you're hopeless and helpless, but God has saved you. Know that to be true. I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left. These down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and rejoice. Please come.